0: Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by dementia-researcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers.
1: Hello, my name is Chris Hardy and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week we will be visiting a couple of topics which I know can affect us all. We'll be looking at dealing with failure and imposter syndrome. And I myself am trying to deal with the cruel blow dealt to me by the Dementia Researcher website when they emailed me having had a paper rejected and a grant application rejected that day to say that they were doing a podcast on failure and that I'd be the perfect person to host it. So thank you very much. Um, This week I'm joined by Anna, Oz and Charlotte, so welcome all. Anna. Anna Volkmer yes. is a speech language therapist and NIHR doctoral research fellow at UCL and we actually work together so you I do. have the pleasure of knowing what you do but can you perhaps tell our listeners uh, what you do in your research?
0: Absolutely. So I'm a speech and language therapist by background and um, my research project is focusing on Uh, refining and piloting a communication training intervention uh, to be delivered by speech and language therapists in the NHS uh, to people with language-led dementia. So I'm in the third year of that four-year project at the minute.
1: Perfect, thank you. So next we have Oz Ismail who is a PhD student at the UCL Centre for Advanced Biomedical Imaging and also a stand-up comedian, is that correct?
2: (laughs) God, the imposter syndrome is just setting in so much right now. Hi, I'm Oz. <laughs> um, so I study the glymphatic system in the brain and specifically uh, what role it may or may not have in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so essentially how the brain cleans itself off toxic proteins. Um, yes, I also do some comedy sometimes um, and also uh, run a podcast and also do lots of science communication stuff.
1: Great, welcome. And last but by no means least, we have Charlotte, uh, my cura did I get that right? Yeah, that's S- fine. Sort of. Um, Perfect. <laughs> who is a medical student at Swansea University, but you previously did a PhD at Imperial College London. Yes. And you are also a comedian and a passionate science communicator.
3: That's correct, yeah.
1: Great. Well, welcome to you all. Thanks so much for giving me time to be here. Um So in this podcast we'll be talking about failure and imposter syndrome and as scientists these are concepts that we would all be familiar with. Failure in terms of paper and grant rejections, imposter syndrome and perhaps the feeling that we might not belong, uh, we might not be good enough or might not deserve to be in the position that we're in. Um, So perhaps we'll start there. So Charlotte I'll come to you first. So Mm -hmm. what does imposter syndrome mean to you?
3: For me imposter syndrome is the overwhelming sense that I'm a fake that I shouldn't be there and that this fear that they're going to find out that it's not real, that I'm not really a scientist and that everything I say and I'm trying to appear intelligent and it's, it's not true and um, for me that can be quite crippling um, and quite uncomfortable and, and that this is a community of, of scientists or whatever career that you're in that you will somehow never be part of that community, hmm. that it's so much... F- it's so far above you, it's completely unattainable, and that they will never accept you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I feel about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, and th- that sounds horrible to, t- <laughs> yeah. to feel like, that, yeah, uh, <laughs> that sounds crippling, as you said. And in terms of how you kind of rationalize that with your external proofs of, of what you can achieve and what you have achieved with your PhD success yeah. at uh, Imperial, how do those two. Things. So you've got how you feel on the inside but mm. then kind of the external evidence of, of how good you are objectively.
3: Yeah, asked. well, so, I mean, it's a bit of a sad story really because, I mean, I really enjoyed my PhD. I love the subject matter. I I really feel that I tried. I put everything into it. But for me, where I did my PhD, I don't think I actually was ever accepted. Okay. Um, I felt that by a large part, of the community that was there I was always looked down upon and I was never given the opportunity to network to collaborate and my abilities were doubted okay. and that's one of the reasons why I've now left academia
1: okay well thank you so much for sharing that yeah that Sounds really tough and um yeah really well, tough experience
3: I'm happy about it now because I'm Overwhelmingly excited to be a doctor. Yeah. And I've also come out of it so much stronger. Great. I mean, when I started my PhD, I was 22, 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked up to these fantastically intelligent people, this person giving me a PhD, wow, the, giving me the funding. And I just, I think I just glorified them in my brain almost as deity. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to the end of my PhD. I'm very, I'm very much more realistic about what those people can achieve, and I'm more realistic about what I can achieve, okay. and I'm much happier just dealing with humans now okay. than I was at the beginning. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, despite it being a really difficult experience, you've been able to draw some positives f- from.
3: Definitely. Okay. Definitely.
1: Great. And so, Oz, coming to you, coming to you. What does imposter syndrome mean to you?
2: I think it's quite uh, similar to what Shah uh, described, uh, but for me, it's this constant. Um, sort of inner monologue that everything you're doing is kind of a front and it's you're just pretending that you know what you're doing constantly pretending what you know you're doing and really on the inside you're just this crippling mess and you're overwhelmed by this worry that one day someone's going to pull back that curtain and be like holy shit yeah there is nothing here. <laughs> um, and it's constant. It, it doesn't matter whether it's... So, like, when I... Uh, like, in the PhD, I'm, I sit in meetings and I worry that people are going to realise that I have, I'm have i not actually understanding everything that everyone is saying. But then I, if I take myself away from it and someone else said that to me, I would say, well, I'm sure everybody else in the room mm-hmm. has not understood X, Y, Z of mm-hmm. what everybody said. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to tell yourself that for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, um, I'm, I'm about to go on placement uh, to this other lab and I'm constantly worrying that they're gonna suddenly realize that, actually this guy's a bit of an idiot. Yeah. Um, because you apply for these things based on, I'm so good at this and I'm so good at that. Um, and it just feels slightly fake, even though mm-hmm. when you're writing down those achievements, yeah. they're actually real State and they happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Fake it
0: till you make
2: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's what I'm constantly <laughs> telling myself. Yeah. Just keep faking it until you just make it to that place yeah. where you've made it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, it's, it's constant. It, it, it can be quite crippling. And yeah. sometimes you just have to do stuff to silence it, to just get past Mm -hmm. whatever you have to do Um, for that time
3: I think for me in the end it was just not caring and then I just Mm. I was quite happy to just sit in my office and sing at the top of my lungs and just be like I know everyone on the corridor can hear this but I don't care it's (laughs) fine (laughs) I don't mind what you think of me anymore um yeah I
0: think you go through waves as well don't you Mm. (laughs) where you go through periods of building up your confidence and saying actually I, I am okay I am okay I'm, I'm gliding now I'm all right I'm all right and then something catches you out and suddenly you're back down at the bottom of the trough oh. of actually no I don't know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about and I'm sure everyone knows again mm-hmm. certainly and I would say that's across my all domains of my life mm-hmm. be it a uh, as a mum, (laughs) where we're all just pretending we know what to do uh, with our children. But also, you know, as a clinician, a speech therapist and a researcher, I'm constantly followed by imposter syndrome. I think Mm. I have to sometimes just accept that it's lurking Mm -hmm. and manage it in its box.
3: I think on on the flip side, there are amazing positives that can Mm. suddenly lurch you forward and make you feel incredible. Um, for example, I went to a, a conference in Galway and I met loads of amazing scientists. And um, they were so accepting and so interested and so interesting. And I think that's key that they were interested in me as well mm. as being interesting themselves. Mm. And I came away from it feeling so lifted yeah. and mm. like, oh, actually I can do this and this is incredible and I am intelligent, but and then, <laughs> but then something else can kick you, like yeah. like you said, kick you down quite Absolutely. quickly.
0: I yeah. think they're really valuable experiences, aren't yeah. they? And also, I find in uh, my clinical discipline of speech and language therapy, mm. imposter syndrome is something we talk about a lot. And when you say to other people, so I was at a, a, a course today, I was presenting a course, and in the middle of the course, I said something that like, oh, I, I often worry that someone that, that may think I don't know what I'm talking about. And you could tangibly see other people in the room, their facial expressions changing and i think that and they responded to that they were saying "Well, oh thank goodness she thinks that as well Mm -hmm. and you realize that we're all experiencing the same anxiety and doubt and actually that is almost lifting in a way that makes you you're sharing the same experiences
1: Mm -hmm. it's quite nice because i because i know you in a professional capacity so yeah. it's really interesting to hear you say that because you come across as you're incredibly confident you're an incredibly good presenter you're someone that I want to emulate when I present because you're going you kind to of fill the room and so it's, it's amazing to, to hear that you don't have that kind of internal monologue saying I'm great this is amazing <laughs> um, well, I, so that, that's how you come across i would tell you
0: what one of my patients once said to me a long time ago I was running a group uh-huh. and I it was with Parkinson's patients and I was late and the patient said to me oh we really missed your loud piercing voice Anna (laughs) and since then (laughs) I've always had this enormous enormous anxiety that actually I'm just too loud (laughs) and (laughs) dominating and actually when I'm presenting I'm just annoying. No that's
2: (laughs) not the case. But I guess all of these all of these things they they play into the whole imposter syndrome don't they? they? And you just like you adapt in these different ways Mm. but I don't know like for me it's the same for me like comedy is such a such a front to be like i kind of know what i'm doing and i'm gonna like tell you some jokes about it mm-hmm. but again it's it's a coping mechanism for the syndrome. i think
3: it's such a shame that we don't all talk about it more mm. i mean when i when i first started my phd i made a promise to myself that i was never ever going to pretend that, that i understood something that i didn't understand yeah. i was going to be the one that put up my hand and said i'm sorry i I'm, i've lost you there Is it okay if you repeat that bit for me? Or ask a question at the end that perhaps I was a bit worried about. Maybe I should have remembered it from my undergrad. I promised myself. And I think that's one of the reasons... This is horrible. One of the reasons why I lost the respect Mm -hmm. of my colleagues and of my supervisor, because they're so used to that high level of people kind of putting on this front that Mm -hmm. they actually thought I was less intelligent because of it. Mm
2: -hmm. But for me, like... One, th- that I feel exactly the same yeah. in sort of academic environments but I think that's one of the things that drove me to want to be a science communicator because really? I, I am always sitting there in any given sciencey room going I don't know 50% of what's yeah. happening mm-hmm. here, maybe less. For that reason, I want to take a step back and understand this step by step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I yeah. like start doing stuff around science communication because for me, I, I thought if I can break it down to myself, then I can yeah. break that down for anybody and un- make anybody understand the science. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that it, it's definitely, the same for you, Shaft. Definitely, definitely.
3: If you... But yeah, if, when you can take it down to the... Because the thing is, it's it's completely unreasonable to make someone feel like they're an idiot when you're mm-hmm. explaining something. It's not mm-hmm. like... It's so important that we try, we, we're we all, as, as a society, a lot more accepting of the fact mm. that the person that we're talking to probably doesn't understand half what we're saying, especially a scientist. And I really love having an open, honest dialogue for people as a mm. science communicator. Yeah. where I can see that they're understanding and that they will stop me. They have the confidence to stop me if they ever don't understand me because they respect me on a level as a human that is, we're standing together as equals. I'm not up on some, like, pillar as, like, a ridiculously intelligent, unattainably intelligent person because it's not the case. Yeah. Anyone who knows me knows that that's not the case. Um, <laughs> but I just the thing have is, interests it's, it's, and it's, I want it's to It's the share nature them. of science,
2: isn't it? Like, oh, it's an, I don't know if science, if it's academia, mm. where you're... Uh, when I was very junior in my career I remember thinking oh gosh everyone in science has a certain level of knowledge that they somehow magically get and I'm supposed to get that knowledge somehow Mm -hmm. and that's how it's seen and then you you start to move through the different ranks of your career and then you realize that either you didn't get the memo somewhere (laughs) or everyone's Pretending Pretending. to know all this stuff and talking in this very high-level language, and it's only when you then start to meet more normal (laughs) scientists who are willing for you to stop and ask questions and discuss it in a bit more basic level. Then you go, oh, so like there's stuff I know that you don't know, and there's stuff. So it's okay that the stuff that you don't know, like Mm. you know, I don't know. Yeah.
3: Have you guys ever had a senior member of staff? convince you that you're wrong about something that you're like no I I've read all the literature. I, I, I know. I know what I'm talking about here. This is, this is this. And they're like, no, no, no. I researched that for many years. You're wrong there. And you're just like, oh, okay then. And you go away, and you're totally correct, and they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just so frustrated sometimes at the unwillingness of some people who are very high up to just be like, oh, actually, what's that? I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. I there. guess it's
0: about losing face, isn't it? That yeah, if, definitely. If they same and probably for the same reasons that yeah. We're worried about, you know, our imposter yeah. syndrome. They, they would lose face and everyone would say they maybe didn't know mm-hmm. anything. I know that I've, I've done it in clinic, clinical situations where a patient's asked me. Um, so, for example, I was seeing a patient. I was working in Australia and they made a word error and on the test. And it was pictures. It's a picture naming test. Mm. And they used a word I'd never heard of. And I'd assumed. So it was a cigarette and they said smoko. So I assumed that Chris is already laughing. I assumed that meant um, that they'd made a semantic error or phonological error, and I yeah. said, "Oh, so um, that's because of your stroke." And they, he, the, the guy stopped me and he said, "Actually, Anna, um, it's an Australian word." And i saying, "I'm really," and I carried on. I said, like, "I'm really sorry, Mr. Smith. You've actually had a stroke. And it's a really common thing." And we, we had this back and forth, and I said, "Okay." I'll just go across the corridor and ask the psychologist. And I went over and much to my shame, it is an Australian word (laughs) and it means cigarette (laughs) break, cigarette break. And I was so, I was like, no, they caught me out. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I'd actually convinced myself as well that I knew because it kind of makes sense with, you know, language that you could make an error like that. So I was quite convinced. Mm -hmm. And then I realised that I just demonstrated Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I didn't know (laughs) the relevant context for Mm -hmm. the word. So in the one hand, that actually also confirmed Mm -hmm. my imposter syndrome. But he didn't seem to mind. He thought I was human. I think actually afterwards, (laughs) the patient, he was laughing his head off. He thought (laughs) it was really, he was saying, oh, you British, you're so funny. You know, he he (laughs) took it as a really, (laughs) you know, it it improved our relationship.
1: Mm -hmm. Nice. So that brings me, back to something so so that kind of acceptance of you you having made a a mistake Um, that brings me back to something that you said earlier charlotte about acceptance being really important and being Mm -hmm. an environment where Mm -hmm. you have that acceptance and oz and charlie you both said actually stand-up comedy or actually science communication is is something where you do have that acceptance where it's Mm -hmm. okay to ask a question it's okay Mm -hmm. to stop you as a speaker and say no i don't understand that last part yeah. um so i'm wondering if if we can reflect on acceptance in an academic mm. context because for me it seems you you have less of that acceptance in this environment where it's all very very competitive mm. um you don't want to look stupid in front of your peers mm. in front of your, your your bosses does that does that ring true with...
3: yeah i think one of the issues and i'm just talking personally now oh actually and from many of my phd Um, peers that when you go into a lab for some reason in science it's a bit enriched for people who are lacking certain like social skills or they just honestly they've just met someone and they just don't know what to say I met somebody in my lab for the first time they looked at me and grunted and ran away when I first met them because they just didn't they just were so confused by a new human Um, and So there's that (laughs) and then you also have, yeah, the extreme competitive nature. Some people will just work 12 hours plus a day including weekends all the time Mm -hmm. because it means that much to them and when you shut yourself away like that and you focus yourself like that on this one singular object. Other things like relationships with your peers, they absolutely go out the window Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of breakdown in mental health as a result of that and this really affects the relationships that people are able to build in labs. On top of that this might all be okay if we had strong management for a lab but of course lab supervisors, principal investigators are not trained as managers, they're scientists and managing sort of this social situation in the lab is quite difficult we don't have days where it's not like hello everyone let's all get to know each other let's sit down and make friends you walk into a lab and you start working for some people and you go and stand next to someone and you're like uh hi (laughs) do you and then they look at you angrily and then like okay yeah i won't say hi again to you but then maybe they're just in the middle of something and they didn't want to say something but yeah yeah, it's it's a tricky one making friends in labs Mm -hmm.
2: But I think yeah I I agree with all, all of those things and I think sometimes the other, on, on the other sort of side sometimes you do have to look or behave in a certain way to mm. fit in a lab and so yeah. it's almost like that human side mm-hmm. has to be taken out because you if you don't fit that image and this is again this is maybe my personal mm. experience in my in my early days in working in science you had to like talk a certain way or you had to, you know, maybe just come across a little bit posh or, you know, you don't talk about, you know, your like personal life. So for me, for, for in the early days, at least, I never used to talk about being gay in sort of a sciencey environment. Mm. And so that used to I felt like I was being fake mm. in that environment. And then that again, I'm like, OK, so now I'm faking upon a personal level and I'm a fake scientist what even am I, you know? And it just it just drives you nuts yeah. thinking about those aspects. And even still, like now, even though now I'm very open and, um, you know, it's a, being open has helped me sort of challenge those kind of um, behaviors, I guess, where people are like not willing to accept that you do actually have a like human life behind all the science. Mm. You still sometimes, you know, you, you, there's this one instance I remember recently where we were at this conference and, um, just based on the way the presenter was speaking, someone leaned into me because I was gay and said, is that person gay? Uh, almost as if I was supposed to know. <laughs> and also, it's funny how this person is giving this amazing talk and you've noticed nice. this one thing about them. Nice. And it made me think about how much I had to hide stuff in the in the past. And it's like, you, you have so many more barriers to break through. Yeah. Not just, you know, if you come from a from a minority group, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And that contributes massively to this sense of not being real. Mm. Um, and, mm. uh, and I don't know if like, that's something that yeah. other people have experienced as well.
3: I can't speak on, on behalf of being a minority. Um, but um, as a woman, I mean, there's lots of women in scientists, but um, particularly as a young woman, I found it quite hard mm. because I was often referred to as a little girl. Um, oh, yeah, we have the sales here. It's for the little girl with the orange hair. And I was like, well, um, I'm, I'm a fully-fledged woman, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, OK? That's,
2: uh, it. That's it. Is that, is just, you're challenged I mean, on your competence. Yeah, I was just brought down who?
3: in that moment, yeah. you know, yeah. because I'm a young woman. I wasn't even that young. I was kind of a normal age. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, yes, I definitely felt that people spoke to me at times like I was a child, which was a bit confusing. Wow. Hmm. I do think there's
0: a. We, we were touching on this before we started the podcast, weren't we? About how there's a, a stereotype of what um, researchers are perhaps expected to be at certain levels. And when I walked in, one of the, the um, guys here was saying, Oh, I expected you to be 20 years old. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm quite a lot older hmm. than that. But equally, I w- I've reflected with. Um, some of my friends who are clinicians that when I did my undergraduate training I did my undergraduate degree in speech therapy here at UCL and I wasn't academic I wasn't very clever I didn't get good grades and then I went to become a clinician and it I felt like um, you had to be really intelligent to be an Mm. academic that was the only that was the key skill and I certainly didn't have that Um, and then as I started working in uh, speech therapy and meeting other health professionals and some who had done perhaps further research work, I also realised that actually perhaps I didn't need to be uber intelligent, I needed to be really enthusiastic and having come back round um, to the field of academia coming from a clinical background into academia, that that idea of not being intelligent enough still haunts me in Mm. some ways you know this expectation that I, if you're an academic, you must be incredibly clever, have really good ideas all the time, and really high IQ. And yet, you know, the other day it took five of us PhD students to work out how to do print page on the computer. You know, those, you know, that these things suddenly Standard. creep in, and you're like, no, I'm not intelligent. I can't do anything. But um, and actually, I also realised, yeah. So I do identify much more with being enthusiastic and passionate mm. and hardworking rather than having to fit this um, high IQ mm. yeah. Yeah. box.
3: Yeah, the, the same is definitely true for me. I don't feel like I'm an intelligent person. Mm-mm. I just work very hard mm-hmm. and sometimes something that someone else in my lab will sit down and do in five minutes, I'll be like, okay, let's think about That's this, right. half an hour later, yeah. come out with it, maybe it's the wrong answer, maybe it's the right answer, yeah. who knows? But, um, yeah, definitely, I, I try much harder. That, that in a sense, is, a, I think is, is a good thing, apart from when the enthusiasm wanes. Yes, yeah. of course. Uh, and then you're left in a bit of a pickle. That's true. Um, statistics.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do uh, some statistics recently, and um, I was trying to work it out, and I was at home, and my husband actually said, Anna... What did you get for GCSE maths? You should know this. I said, I got an A. And he said, I got a C. And I know exactly what this is. It's just basic algebra. (laughs) I said, I definitely didn't learn this. Why are my GCSEs important? Like 30 years later. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's, and yet I'm still talking about that grade I got I was and I said to him I think I'm just really good at remembering things and my enthusiasm for statistics after the third time I've had to do a statistics module is really waning I just can't maintain mm-hmm. an enthusiasm for this and mm-hmm. but I guess that's where your peer group and actually that so in my office the other girls in my office we happen to be all girls um some of the girls are really really good at uh, statistics and much less skilled in, for example, writing a polite British email. So we trade skills. So they help me with my statistics and I help them articulate a polite email. Yes,
3: I had to help so many people do that (coughs) because I was a lot of the time the only British person in my lab and I was called on all the time. I felt so clever. I was like, well... Let's go through this point by point. That's and they'd right. send me the email and I'd modify it for them before sending it on. Exactly. It was great fun. Absolutely.
0: Um, the peer group is wonderful.
3: Yeah, I think one thing that's key to getting rid of imposter syndrome is goofing around yeah. um, with your peers. Um, you know if there is a massive cardboard box let's all climb in it just for 10 minutes and laugh about the cardboard box or fling (laughs) things around or when you drop your sample on the floor that you've spent three weeks preparing verbalize it as aggressively as you desire and everyone does it and then very soon so i mean although i really struggled with the the sort of oh do i know what i'm doing is this good enough especially because I don't think that was necessarily my fault. I would. I don't think that was a narcissistic tendency. I think that the goals as a PhD student are so nebulous. You just mm-hmm. you don't actually know what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but goofing around and just being so honest when you made a mistake with your lab mates and then laughing at it, mm. it just really helped banish imposter syndrome for me.
2: Because it, it does make you... Like, it, People, everybody sees that you're human. You yeah. see yourself yeah. that you're human, don't you? Yeah. Like it's ve- it, like I I would agree with that, and I think just talk about just 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 be just be human in the lab. Yeah. I, I
3: don't
2: I don't think that's necessarily always like met very openly Absolutely, either. Yeah. So like um, I, I've had comments made to me when I first started doing comedy and podcast. Someone said, "Oh, you're very sort of open uh, about yeah. yourself," and I was like. Okay, so I've talked about sex, (laughs) big deal. (laughs) Um, And they they were just like, oh, so shocked that you were just being a normal person Mm -hmm. and that there there was a normal person behind the scientist. But for me, that was really important to just feel like I was this complete person, not just this front Mm -hmm. I was putting on at work. And for me to just let go of that kind of, I don't know, uptightness, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And I think the more you're open about it, the more people offer help. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. their advice you know there's the, the old saying two heads are better than one or it takes a village i think that those those sayings are there for a reason because we can't all have all the skills to do everything mm-hmm. and yeah. um we need to share our resources and our knowledge and i think you can find that not only from within your immediate peer group but from broader peer groups so through blo- i do some blogging and i've had uh, other clinical researchers email me saying your blog helped me and I live remotely and I'm a remote student to this other university I have very little in terms of peer group and she was saying that things like blogging really helped her so reading my blog and I certainly read other people's blogs there's lots of really nice blogs about writing academic writing Mm. that's not a skill I feel I've got necessarily it's a skill I feel I'm working on (laughs) and I think many people say that but I feel I'm working quite hard on (laughs) but actually a lot of those blogs are really useful they give useful tips and hints Mm. and strategies and the more I practice and use some of those tips and hints not all are for me but some of them are I think that helps and then always Chris and I have talked a bit about things like exercise, running.
1: Indeed.
3: Uh, right. Exercise. I think they're the two things that got me through. My science communication and, and comedy, which mm. is where I met Oz. Mm. Um, and I think we bonded over imposter yeah. syndrome because my yeah, first set right. was about yeah.
2: having, like, being a complete fake in London. <laughs> and I,
3: yeah, I felt so at one <laughs> We connected. We yeah. did. So, I, I sat in the that audience like, Brilliant. trying to um, find out who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, getting like making friends i guess with phd students from other universities who also had a massive keen for um they were massively keen for communication it really lifted me and just having a really solid moan yeah. with them was fantastic yeah exercise as well get out get running uh, it was yeah. lovely mm-hmm. help like burn off that rage
0: yeah yeah I agree. <laughs> talk to your mum. that's always good i find that useful it sounds really silly but my mum is a female in a male dominated industry <coughs> excuse me she works in um she's a financial journalist and she told me when I went into my grant application grant interview sorry um she told me to think like a man and although I don't think she necessarily meant that I think what she meant was to in her industry at the time when she was working in the late 60s and 70s she became more um What's the word? Well known in that industry, it was male dominated. And I guess she, I think what she was referring to was just be confident and outgoing and have a go rather mm-hmm. than. And so I just thought, well, I'll just try that. <laughs> and it actually really helped, I think that advice. And often I go back to my mum and say, oh, it's so hard. <laughs> and she says, just keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those kind of support networks are really helpful as well.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I think that's some really good advice and it's been a really interesting discussion. We're going to have to wrap up soon. Before we do, does anyone have any final words on the subjects that you'd like to to say, any words of wisdom that you feel like you should impart to people out there listening?
2: Well, I guess from a personal point of view, I think just remember that science, all through your science career, there are so many failures. I feel like science is pretty... Uh, good at setting you up but then like you because you will fail not just in your experiments you will fail you'll get rejected from grants you get rejected from papers but for me you just have to keep going like my what I've learned over the years is that you just have to keep trying yeah. what I would like to see I guess from academia from science is just more of a support system mm. or more of a net for people to be caught when they fall because that's what I've lacked and that's where I've found my mental health struggle many times is when I haven't had a real support network for when experiments were failing time and time again I had to just keep going or facing many rejections on applications or grants or even my PhD. Um, But, yeah, just... If you don't, if if you don't have a formal support system, then just lean on your friends, uh, lean on your comedy friends yeah. <laughs> as well, and just find like <laughs> hobbies. Like mm. I, one hundred percent, will put will say, what saved me in a very dark time in my PhD was finding this like comedy world and just letting everything out through that. Mm. And had I not entered um, that side of things, I would have definitely quit my PhD because mm. it was that dark.
3: Yeah. I think I massively agree with um, your, yeah, there will be lots of ups and downs, lots of downs in particular, but so long as you compact, mart- I can't say this word, can you help me, Oz? Compartmentalise. Yes, <laughs> I said it! Um, yeah, so, you know, go home at 6pm and have an evening to yourself, mm. have your weekends. make that rule for yourself and don't overstretch yourself and just allow yourself to be human and also this is kind of the opposite advice to keep on trying which is know when to quit yeah Um,
2: absolutely i would agree and
3: really be firm with people who tell you to do something ridiculous go in there march in and say no actually i don't think that's a good idea because you you can say those things and you should say those things and in the end you'll be respected for it. Mm -hmm. Don't keep your head down and and keep on grinding and keep on banging your head against the wall just because someone's been like, oh, carry on trying, oh, carry on trying, oh, carry on trying. Go in and say, this isn't working, I'm going to try something different, something Mm. new, take a new route, a new path. Um, Don't be scared to do that because I was and (laughs) I was so afraid of putting my foot down and in the end it cost me quite a few years. Mm. I was just gonna
0: also add, (coughs) <coughs> excuse me that um, I think it's really important to talk about it because if you talk about imposter syndrome you generally find that other people are experiencing it yeah. and um, the more you talk to other people about it who've been through it the more they're generally willing like today us coming here to pay their knowledge and experience forward mm. and, um, and these kind of opportunities these kind of podcasts I think are great ways of sharing yeah. and those experiences and strategies and um, I've uh, been part of a group of speech and language therapists we've come together and um, one of the only things we've done so far is we've written a developed a twitter handle called at clinic clin slts at clinical academic slts and we're trying to uh, develop an, an online community of academic speech therapists who can share their knowledge and pay it forward to aspiring um speech therapist who may want to try academia but feel too anxious and worried Mm. and um so hopefully people won't waste years trying to
3: do that one more point which is that um i feel a lot of people at the top are like oh i went through a terrible time therefore i would Treat those lower oh than me, my God, um, not, that, yeah. not as nicely as I should <laughs> yeah. do. And I think part of we're all talking about this is great. Yes, like you yeah. were mentioning, support networks, everything is such, it's so good that you've created that total handle. You're creating this community, but we also need the people at the top to be nice yeah. and to be. Accepted. But it's seen as a rite
2: of passage, isn't it? Like yeah. we went through that, so now you go through
3: not, that, and yeah. then
2: you will graduate. A broken mess, exactly. <laughs> but you will have a PhD, <laughs> so everything will be okay.
0: Yes, <laughs> hopefully they'll all retire soon. Yeah, they will take their places. Yeah, that's great. a, a new generation, the new wave.
1: That's that's the kind of the, the bully mentality, right? You know, I was bullied at, you, you, you bullied at school, I will be the bully, or, you know, mm. it's that sort of, it's that vicious cycle. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're absolutely right, I think we do need to, to break that. Mm. Um So, I mean, I think it's been an incredibly interesting discussion. Thank you so much for sharing sharing so openly, so honestly. Um, We talked a lot about the real importance of acceptance and being able to um, have that internal monologue and express it openly Mm -hmm. to your friends, to your colleagues, and to to be silly sometimes, to do some exercise, to actually make sure that you have some breaks from, from lab work mm, or from, from your PhD. Big
3: breaks.
1: Yeah, and to go home at and 6 Go PM. on holiday. Go. And
3: guilt-free breaks as well. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't sit there watching the TV being like, oh, I should be at the lab. Mm-hmm. It's fine, you're allowed a break.
1: Mm-hmm. And for me, the most important thing is to talk about it because I think... I think as you've all said, this is something that it's almost something we're, we're ashamed to talk about, but actually mm-hmm. by being open about it, by sitting opposite three amazing people here for, for a variety of reasons and, and hearing you talk openly about your imposter syndromes and some of your failings, if you call them that. I think that's amazing. and I think that's really in- inspirational for the people listening so thank you so much Um, so that brings us to the end of today's podcast recording Um, so thank you Anna, Oz and Charlotte Um, thank you pleasure so you can visit our website to look at profiles of all of our panellists and Anna you're a regular blog contributor so please visit the website and take a look Um, if you've got anything to add on this topic yourselves at home please do post your comments in the forum on our website or drop us a line on Twitter using hashtag ECR Dementia and please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and itunes and tell your friends and colleagues thanks so much
0: thank you thanks thank you
3: this was a podcast brought to you by dementia researcher everything you need in one place register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk